Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Jean-Michel Grant, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Action Against Hunger here in the UK. We're going to be looking at the issue of malnutrition, prediction, prevention, treatment, particularly in the global south. And you will be amazed at some of the challenges and the scale of the problem, but also really encouraged by some of the treatments and the ability to diagnose and to empower local communities to self-diagnose when there is malnutrition. And we'll inform you on the general state of affairs. So without further ado, Jean-Michel, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, well, it's good to see you. I know we're both in London, so not far, no time difference to overcome today. So you're the Chief Executive Officer of Action Against Hunger. And I'd love to start there. Like, what is Action Against Hunger all about? I think it is, uh, what we do is clearly stated in our name. Our, our vision is a, is, is a world without hunger. So when I speak about hunger, uh, we are referring mostly to life frightening hunger. So famine, starvation, food crisis, and more specifically, uh, acute malnutrition uh, for, on the, for the children under five years old. Because um, it is during this period of what we call the, the 1,000 days between the conception and the child's second birthday, that any human being will be building a strong immune system, uh, which will affect his or her future uh, in terms of physical or intellectual development. So Action Against Hunger is an organization which is focusing on free, the, we predict, prevent, and treat life-frightening hunger and malnutrition. So that, that's the, very the three elements that the organization is, is focusing on. So the, the predict, all the diagnosis, it's early warning system, and how we can spot the early signs of potential hunger crisis or acute malnutrition rates. And um, in terms of the, 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 the malnutrition, we work both on treatment and prevention. To give you an idea, we, we are providing access to treatment to an average of what, 600,000 children every single year. Uh, so that's the treatment. And the prevention is, is more to summarize, is to try to understand what are the, the underlying causes or factors that are driving malnutrition and trying to see how we can mitigate them. So that's in, in the essence, predict, prevent and treatment, the three areas that we are working. And to finish the, org the organization is to put in context, the UK office, we are part of a larger network, seven members. So we are present in 50, 51 countries worldwide. So it's represent what, 8,000 staff. And mostly 92 or 93% are national staff in these countries. And we reach around 25, 26 million people every year in terms of the people we assist. And to finish with the figures, to make the whole thing, the turnover to give a sense of size is around half billion euros per year, this turnover of the entire organization. Half a billion euros. How does your, uh, where do you generate your income? How does that work? Mostly, I think around 
80 percent are coming from what we call institutional donors, so mostly governments from the EU, US, the British, the Canadian, um, the Swedish, uh, all from government, the, the, the traditional, the UN, the traditional institutional donors. So it's around 80 percent, 75, 80 percent. And the rest are coming from private sources, individual donors, and uh, the British public has proven very, very generous. We are part of the Disaster Emergency Committee, the DEC. So we, we, we benefit from the generosity of, the, of the, the public, but it's very, very strong in France, in Spain, in the US as well. And the rest are com- corporate and foundations and, and financial pieces. So that's this 20% is clearly an area that we try to focus in order to grow the private uh, resources and to diversify beyond the traditional uh, European and North American market. Mm-hmm. And so you're focused on severe or acute malnutrition. You mentioned three areas, prediction, prevention, and treatment. And most of your work, uh, a big thrust of what you do, has a presence in the global south and the developing world. That That's correct, yeah. What is the state of affairs there? And I, and I should point to uh, a couple of previous episodes to our listeners, which might be useful. We had a a mutual friend, uh, Lawrence Haddad, who is the head of the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition or GAIN. He's been on the show a couple of times before. So do take a listen uh, to both of those episodes that are tackling uh, hunger, uh, SDG2, Sustainable Development Goal 2. So uh, Jean-Michel, yes, in terms of the context, give us a little bit of a, a feel of what is the reality on the ground right now with respect to acute malnutrition. Okay. First of all, acute malnutrition is sometimes also called wasting. So let's focus on use one term, acute malnutrition. And it is when a child weight is too low for his height. So to oversimplify this or to... it's. Uh, these are the emaciated children that we unfortunately see on TV when there is a major food crisis. However, what the TVs are not showing is that there are an estimated 50 million children under five years old who are suffering from acute malnutrition at, at any given time. And around within this group, there are around 15 million that are in severe condition it means with life-threatening condition, the, the high risk of mortality. What we need to know, the, the good news is that th- there is a treatment and the treatment has been developed over the last uh, 30 years. The treatment is available and has a 95% cure rate. So that's, that's the good news. The less good news is that despite the fact that the, the number of children and who have access to the treatment has increased slightly since 2010 and accelerated a bit. There is still only one out of three severely malnourished or acutely malnourished children who are receiving the treatment. So less than 30%, and 30% is a very high number, and we are probably more around 25%. So still, two-thirds of the children are not receiving a treatment that exists as being is accepted and endorsed by WHO. So that's where 
one of the biggest challenge of nowadays is, is about how we scale up access to treatment. And the second area is how we better understand the drivers of malnutrition and how we can, what are the most appropriate actions that we need to take to try to mitigate uh, these drivers and mitigate the risk of children becoming malnourished. When you say, when you say the treatment is available, what does the treatment look like? Yeah, the, the, there have been a series of, um, I would say, revolutions over the, the last uh, 20 years, 30, uh, 30 years. And, uh, and I think that that's why it also makes the, the part exciting on, on nutrition is that the first one, and I will be quick on this revolution, but the, the first one was in the 90s where there was a lot of severely malnourished children and with a very high rate of mortality. A lot of them were dying. So the idea was to find a treatment. And so there, there was a treatment which was a kind of a milk formula in which milk formula, which has been uh, created and provided a, a mix of scientists, action against hunger was core to, uh, to this group and uh, some companies to, to produce it. This had immediately reduced the death, the mortality rate from 25% to 5%. However, it needed water and it needed to, to be in uh, clinical and hospitals. So it, it was very demanding. The, the, the mom or the caretakers with the child had to stay up to two, three months into a play. So came the second revolution, which was about how we are going to bring this treatment to the people. So that's where uh, uh, there was a, the invention of uh, the ready-to-use therapeutic pasta pests, which is the RUTF. It's a therapeutic food, which is uh, mostly milk powder, peanuts, peanuts butter, vegetable, oil, sugar, and a mix of vitamins and salt uh, and minerals. And that's the, the... That's a paste. It's a paste. It's a paste. And uh, this... The revolution of that is that it was in a pack which did not need water, didn't need to be in the fridge, so could be transported and the, the time you can use it for two years. So it changed radically the ways, the treatment and the access to treatment. So only the very, very severe cases needed to go to the hospital, but the majority could receive it, uh, could receive it uh, at home. So that was a massive revolution. Uh, and fairly cost-effective, fairly cost-effective. And very cost-effective. So that was the, 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 it enabled to go from the hospital to the community. And it was, became the community management of this malnutritionist community. And now the, 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 new, the new stage today is to say, okay, we have this treatment, people, they can have access to. It's about how, it's more about the diagnosis. And we are working more and more with the communities and, and the caretakers and the mom to, to go towards the self-diagnosis is that they can try to identify at home themselves. So that's really fascinating. So you, you've given us really good insight into the sort of revolutions that have happened in terms of treatment and, uh, and how you have cost-effective nutritional paste that is resilient, doesn't need cold storage, doesn't need to be in a clinical space. And you touch on the fact that now the key hurdle or a key hurdle is diagnosis. I know that at Action Against Hunger, you're doing some really interesting stuff to help diagnosis within the community, uh, whether it's a parent or a health worker. 
Uh, tell us about that. I'd love to find out more about that. Yes, there are indeed different ways to diagnose, and we still have the, the, the most accurate, which is done by community health workers or by uh, staff, nurses or medical staff, where they, they are taking the height, the weight of the child in order to, uh, to measure. But also what we are focusing more and more is about having an early warning system where at household level, the caretakers, and especially a focus on the mom, can try to spot the early signs. And there are two things that we are doing today is to use what we call the mid-upper mid arm circumference. It's, it's kind of um, a, a simple plastic uh, or say bracelet that you put uh, on the child. It has three colors with numbers. So it, it measures, it's a tape, which measures. Okay, the, it's like a measuring tape that you put above the elbow. It's a measuring tape which uh, on the mid-upper arm and with colors, color code. If it's green, if the, the round circle is green and it's going the green color, then it's okay. If it's yellow, it's alarming. If it's red, it needs, the child needs to go to uh, be referred to uh, the clinic. And this is just so that I understand, this is based on the, the circumference of the upper arm. The circumference, yeah, exactly. It's for children under five years old. So not over, it's only from six months to five years old. And especially for the, the youngest, so that that's and uh, it's it's early indication. So obviously that's a proxy indicator. That's not the most accurate medical, but it's a good, very good proxy. And it's for the, the the caretakers and the the mothers to say, okay, oh, there is there's a risk, and the child needs to be. I need to bring the child to the medical uh, clinic. So it's uh, it's in centimeters. And the colors go and varies. And if you are over 11 centimeters, under 11 centimeters, that you're in the red color or the child is on the red color. So if the circumference of the upper arm is less than 11 centimeters, the child needs to urgently be referred to uh, the closest medical center for further measurements. And that they go more into the, 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 the details, really, the more accurate measurement. So it's very intuitive, easy to use. The parent or, or caregiver does not need to know how to read. Exactly. Or, or right. That's the color code. It's just about to explain rather than to go into the details about 11 centimeters or etc. And if the person cannot read, it's just color code. And, uh, and this is really uh, an area which we are developing a lot now about the self-assessment. The second one which we are developing is, is, um, is more for the community health workers, but hopefully at some point is going to be used by, uh, uh, by the household themselves, is, is a mobile phone. So we have been over the last four years developing an, uh, an app where by taking a picture of the arm of a child, the algorithm is taking several points in the arm and will define if the child is malnourished or not. And that's something that we, we are really very close to a finalize. We are testing in, uh, in different countries. And it's, uh, it's the, the no, on the stage where it brings more accuracy. And now we know that the mobile phone is more and more used and available in, even in the most remote, the areas. 
So that's uh, something that we are also investing because the idea is that they need directly link. We can make a lot of link to uh, medical centers and to database and so that we, we can have uh, a, a whole interaction and providing advice as well uh, online for this alert system. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about the, um, I guess the sequencing and timeframes in terms of getting the, and I don't know, what's the name of the armband that tells, that's color-coded? What's, is there a name for that? Yeah, we call it MUAC, M-U-A-C, Mid-Upper Arm Circumference. When did that come into the market? How long did it take to get some traction? And, and I guess, because I'm trying to find out then with regards to the app, what might we look at if you and I are having a conversation in five years time, how prevalent would the app be and what traction might we have? Like just to get an understanding of these, these, uh, these tools. Yeah. The, the, the MUAC itself has been used for, for more than 20 years, even more than that. But it was, the challenge is that it was used before by trained elf workers. Now it has been, this, it is distributed to everybody who have a child and with an explanation on how it works. So that's the massive transition is about rather than, a, a, it's, it's really about empowering people at the household uh, to be part of the diagnosis. Uh, rather than to be passive and having to go uh, to the medical center. And, and for the moment, this is growing very fast in terms of the numbers of community and household who are receiving this MUAC because it costs very, very little. So it, it's a very, very low cost uh, early warning technology. And this can get distributed through either health workers or education exactly. facilities or you name it. Yeah, because the, the, the training is very simple. So we can use all the different channels at community level to pass and uh, to train trainers and et cetera, and, and cascading on and reach vast number of, uh, of people and uh, families. So why, why would somebody not have access that, to that right now? Uh, I, I don't know, grab country X in the developing world. Why would somebody not have access to it right now with all the efforts uh, of international development, the low cost and simplicity of this MUAC? The main reason is mostly because some the the medical the primary medi, primary health medical system will not exist in some areas or will be very very weak, and and that's the primary channel that we are using. So say South Sudan, for instance. South Sudan, for example, is that unless we are sending teams and we are using other community-based organization. But uh, in many communities, especially those who are living in remote areas or on the conflict violence that we don't have access, uh, these are to which communities are the one that unfortunately have less access to primary health care. And therefore, it's much more complicated to, uh, to get both the item, but also the training which is going uh, with. But... Otherwise, and consequently, and consequently, the treatment, and consequently, obviously, the treatment, and that's that's where the the biggest issue today is 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 the diagnosis is one part, but it's also is more the provision of the treatment uh, because we have to send this AIUTF this based 
and we we have to explain. What do you call the paste? It's called RUTF, ready ready to use therapeutic food. RUTF, yeah, that's the the paste. The treatment itself is the biggest challenge: access to treatment, distribution of the treatment. Um, because the, the, the product, the RUTF, has still only a two-year limited time used. Uh, we didn't touch on the cost. Um, how costly or, or inexpensive is the, uh, the ready-to-use therapeutic paste? The ready-to-use, we the calculation is that for an average treatment, so it means for the child to be from the beginning to the end of this treatment, will be around 45 to 50 pounds including all that they are receiving, I think, around three to five sachets per day. So, and it lasts up to, let's six weeks to a three months, uh, depending on the severity of the case. So, the average is around 45 to 50 pounds, the cost. Then after, on the top of that, you have a variable cost, which is the logistic. And that's where the price can be low when it's, for example, in a refugee camps or in urban areas where you have a concentration of people or much higher when you have to go to remote villages uh, where they have a sparsely populated uh, area. So the, the cost will vary and it can go from uh, an additional £30 to an additional £100 uh, depending on where it is. And I think that's that's a danger, and we try really to balance between highly density populated areas, which at the end will be say, oh, yeah, it's cost effective, but we need not to forget all this population which are living in a very, very remote and out rich area. So I think that that's where uh, every time we try to have a, a both approach, a two-prone approach in both these two areas, so that at the end, the average cost uh, together is uh, is reasonable. Mm -hmm. So if I'm looking at the challenges that you're tackling and uh, and getting these children who are acutely malnourished uh, and treating them, the biggest challenge is not the economics of serving those who you can reach, but rather because of the remote logistics or being able to uh, not access due to conflict Remote and conflict, those are the two key things that prevent you from reaching someone, and that is the main impediment from diagnosis and treating those people. Other than that, in, in more concentrated settings, in settings of no conflict, you are able to diagnose, you're able to treat, and you're able to afford treatment. Yes, if the resources were commensurate to the ambition that are mentioned or in big summit and shows and SDGs, but unfortunately the the resources are not commensurate to the needs. And so tell us a little bit about that gap then. What's the gap? Putting aside the people, the children who are in remote or conflict areas, but let's say people in in, in easy easy to reach settings. What is the funding gap there? I think it's, uh, I don't. I will give you a range because uh, I. Don't remember that the split has been done in that way, but I think it's around six to ten billion a year uh, still to get that. What you have also to see is that many, some countries or governments 
are not really yet at the stage where they have embraced the treatment or access to treatment for malnourished children in terms they didn't they don't put it high on their agenda so there is a lot of work to be done with the local governments uh, a lot of progress have been made because at some stage unfortunately treatment or the existence of these severely malnourished children are becoming or became very political when you have governments who want to portray and promote their country as a good place to invest or attract investors or attract development, they sometimes prefer to put a veil on these severely malnourished children because it affects potentially the perception that uh, some external people may have about the country. So that, that's uh, denying the existence of these children is sometimes the first hurdle. So you can imagine that we are coming from very far when we have to go through this resistance. Uh, so, and so especially true in countries which are not in humanitarian crisis or settings, because a large part of the civilian malnourished children are not in the humanitarian crisis. And I think that that's where we are uh, facing a different challenge on getting uh, government on board. And you can imagine some of them are even preventing by not recognizing they are not allowing us to do uh, the, the work properly. So that's um, acknowledgement is the first uh, is the first step. It's so upsetting that that something such as acknowledgement by a national government prevents. Uh, treatment, diagnosis, and treatment of, of children who are acutely malnourished. Um, At least it prevents the scale up. Uh, it may not prevent totally, but definitively it's an hurdle in terms of uh, uh, in terms of scaling up openly and engaging openly with the different communities and local government. And um, many of these national governments should realize that putting a veil over the problem, not acknowledging that there is a problem and having children who are acutely malnourished or wasting or stunted does have long-term consequences for how that child will develop in terms of their intellectual capacities down the line and in terms of their ability to contribute to economic output of that country. So they are, in essence, baking in a suboptimal economic output for the long term in their countries by, by neglecting the reality that that these problems exist. Exactly, and uh, that's why we are trying to, one of the avenues that we are doing is to integrate malnutrition or nutrition into the health system. So getting nutrition be part of the universal health coverage is contributing first to be much more efficient in terms of the use of the resources, because it's part of, will be part of an integrated system and, and the normal routine at primary health care system level. But it also means that we don't isolate acute malnutrition as a very specific problems that we are raising. So, uh, and that is really the trend today. And it's, it's more a successful, uh, a more successful approach and more promising approach when we have this comprehensive health package approach. And I think that that's the, the direction and that's how we have succeeded to unlock some potential resistance from government to speak openly and to acknowledge acute nutrition. They are much more open when it is within the health 
uh, approach uh, more globally. Now, one one thing we haven't touched on just yet, and it'll probably be part of episode number two whenever you come back, <laughs> um, is the fact that even if you diagnose and you treat a child who's acutely malnourished, and over the the weeks and months you get that child into a healthy state, once you pull away, it, there's no there's no certainty that that same predicament of acute malnourishment won't reoccur for that child. Yeah. And you, you pointed out that the, the biggest challenge that we are now embracing, it's not now, we, we have been aware of what are the different drivers, but what is happening now, and, and actually again, Sunga, we are really working a lot on that, is about how we, we can narrow the diagnosis to specific contexts rather than to have this wide range of responses that is everything has to be like, okay, if people were not poor, if they had access to health, everything will be better. Okay, fair enough. But when you have limited resources and you need to make priorities, so we are, we need to make choices on what are the most efficient and effective response. And so we have developed what we call a causal analysis which is very context driven. So we send team and they make a wide range of analysis and factors of what, what are the main drivers of malnutrition and therefore what are the recommendations. And that's what, on that, this is really a direction that the whole nutrition community is, is looking at is how we improve this diagnosis and therefore the recommendation and therefore the prioritization of uh, on that. And on that, and I will, uh, I will finish on that. It's, what came out of this analysis, and we, we carried out around 40 already over the last three or four years. So we start to have quite a good evidence or set of data. What is interesting is that sometimes discrepancies on the recommendation between what the experts are recommending and what the population themselves would prefer and recommend. And it changed sometimes drastically between the two. So we are at stage about how, can, how we can reconcile both. So we are testing a new approach in Senegal nowadays where we are using the methodology of the experts, but it's going to be implemented by the communities themselves in order to see how we can reconcile sometimes the differences uh, between the two and in terms of the recommendation and moving forward because there is no point to make recommendation if there is no ownership from the communities. They are never going to do it. And so, a more participatory approach. It's more, and it's, I think it's the, and this is for another discussion. Is is part of all this drive towards how we can we put communities and individuals at the core and the center of what we are doing all the, the development and the in the the humanitarian sector. So how we can put them in the decision-making process and be part, not part of it, being the people who are going from the diagnosis to uh, the decision and the implementation. And we are here to support and rather than drive. Yeah. A couple of things before we wrap up. First of all, tell me a little bit about your background. How did you end up where you are today? I ended up, first of all, uh, I, I was supposed to be a history teacher. So... It has never been a plan to join the charity sector at all. And life provided me an opportunity that I seized and within what, three weeks, I went 
from being becoming a potential teacher to uh, to Bosnia. So it was mid nineties, and uh, I spent two years in Bosnia, and uh, followed by another six years from Chechnya, Rakhine uh, State, and Tajikistan. Working where, where? Where were you working when you were at Action Against Hunger? In Bosnia, no, it was a French, a very a small French organization which disappeared since it's called Equilibre. They uh, disappeared. But then I joined Action, uh, action Against Hunger. So you've been with Ac Action Against Hunger for... For, for 20, 28 years now. And uh, so that was the, the field experience. And then I came to London uh, 20, 20 years ago. Uh, and after one year, I, I became uh, the CEO so it has been almost 20 years of being the CEO of Action Against Hunger UK and fantastic journey. Excellent, excellent. I always love to ask my guests for a key takeaway before we wrap up the show. And so let me pose that question to you. What's that key thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? The key takeaway will be on one of my last points about how when we want to reach changes or achieve changes and the nutrition community as journey has showed that is that starting with expertise and evidence and researchers and we are fantastic scientists is a starting point. It's good. We know what to do. We have the treatment, etc. But what counts and where we are still in a very early learning stage is that when you want to scale up, when you engage the donors, the national government, and now very late, the communities to get to create a social appetite, a social movement, this part is the critical aspect of all scaling up. And I think that we are late as the nutrition organizational community in engaging the communities and the households themselves, because without them asking willing to be part, understanding uh, that there is, there is no scale up. And it's not only about expert and donors. I think that that's really uh, what it has been for probably 30 odd years. We could have been earlier in engaging the communities, but we are on the right pace today, the right path. And I think that uh, everything is going to accelerate and will be, the changes will come with this community and local government engagement. And until and unless we unlock that, we work with them, if for them to become the driving force, there will be little changes and we will, we will not achieve this uh, scale up. But I'm, I remain very optimistic on that. And we, we, are, we are doing very uh, great um, steps and moving forward on that. Excellent, excellent. Well, sincere best of luck engaging with the local community, Jean-Michel. And, um, and thank you for enlightening me and enlightening us on the issues you're tackling, severe acute malnutrition, the prediction, prevention, treatment, the sheer scale of the problem. And I wish you the best of luck on this journey. And hopefully, as we progress towards 2030, the target year for the SDGs, We'll be looking back with um, with a favorable view of what has transpired. Yes, uh, I like your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for joining us. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Jean-Michel Grant, 
Chief Executive Officer of Action Against Hunger here in the UK. For information about this conversation and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at lij.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. I thoroughly enjoyed producing today's show for you. I hope you found it as informative as I did. And I very much look forward to catching up with you next week.